Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up I'll be speaking to John Friedman, the newly appointed Deputy Director of Limud. We'll be finding out about his vision for the organisation moving forward as well as what we can expect from this year's event. And I'm Diana Toman, and I'm going to be talking about a feature documentary called Back to Berlin that follows the mission of 11 bikers who take the Maccabea torch from Israel to the site of the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And I shall be talking to the film's director, Catherine Lurie. And I'm Tony Honigberg, and I will be talking to the head teacher of Yavna College, whose name is Spencer Lewis. And we're going to be talking about the accolade that they have just been named as the best performing comprehensive school in the country. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the attack made by Joan Ryan on Jeremy Corbyn for his stance on Israel and anti-Semitism. Speaking at a Labour Friends of Israel lunch, Ms Ryan, who is the group's chairperson, told a 300-strong audience, including Labour's deputy leader Tom Watson, that it was not morally right or acceptable to lay a wreath at the grave of those who order the torture and murder of people simply because they're Israelis. And Labour has dropped its investigation into Ian Austin MP, who'd been charged with abusive behaviour after he confronted party chairman Ian Lavery in the House of Commons. Mr Austin, who represents Dudley North, is the adopted son of Czech Jewish refugees. He'd had a heated exchange with Mr Lavery over Labour's then long-overdue adoption of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. The Prime Minister launched a scathing attack on anti-Semitism and misogyny at the SARA conference which was held in Downing Street. It explores the relationship between hatred of Jews and discrimination towards women. In a thinly veiled attack on Jeremy Corbyn, Mrs May said these attitudes are not limited to the far right and said her government was removing all hiding places for anti-Semitism. Yavna College in Boreham Wood has been judged the best comprehensive school in the country. This year's list of best-performing schools was published in the Sunday Times last weekend. Head teacher Spencer Lewis said he was proud and delighted. A Jewish woman who rebelled against her orthodox upbringing has won a court battle against her ex-husband over their family home in Stamford Hill, which is worth £1.4 million. Miriam Clyers, who's 46, left her ultra-orthodox husband Shlomo in 2012, declaring enough was enough. They'd been married for 17 years. Mr. Clyer still lives in the property, but the sale of the house will see Miriam receive £810,000 compared with 165000 for her ex-husband after debts are settled. And finally, a devout Christian boat builder wants to sail his life-size replica of Noah's Ark to Israel. Johann Hubers, who's Dutch, built the impressive vessel according to specifications detailed in the Bible. It's 390 feet long and 75 feet high. It's a tourist attraction in Holland, but Mr Hubers has declared a love for Israel and intends to take the Ark there once he has the money to rent tugboats to pull it, as it has no engine. Viv, thank you very much indeed. First on the Jewish Views this week, Fran Wolfish, Features Editor, joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. And the headline reading, Fran, on the front page, Yes, Prime Minister, what has Theresa May done? Well, in a, I think we can all safely say that uh, Theresa May has been through the mill lately, trying to sort out this whole Brexit deal. But um, haven't we all? But yes, <laughs> I know we we all feel we've been through the mill. I'm sure she's been through it more than most. However, she did still have time to come along to support 
the SARA conference, which was actually a special event held on gendered anti-Semitism, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's essentially anti-Semitism and misogyny. She was addressing the fact that a lot of the anti-Semitic remarks that we've seen of late directed at well-known figures and politicians happen to be female and the comments are anti-Semitic and more women than men are being attacked in this way. So she basically, you know, said that, you know, enough is enough. I have no time for equivocation. Anti-Semitism is racism. And any equality movement that indulges or ignores is not worthy of the name. You know, so she, you know, she does want to address this issue. I think it's good that she's she's raising this problem. She noted that former Haringey council leader Claire Cober stepped down after a torrent of personal abuse in which she said the only thing worse than sexism was the anti-Semitism. So clearly this is an issue. We've we've seen a lot about anti-Semitism. Mm. Now we're seeing a sort of a slightly different angle to it, which is that women particularly are being attacked. And what's particularly poignant about this is that quite a lot of the female politicians that she refers to are actually Labour politicians. So um, one can only assume that Luciana Berger features in that, as well as Dame Margaret Hodge. You know, these are not politicians from her party, and yet she is still clearly passionate enough about this subject that she feels that as Prime Minister, she has to raise awareness for it. Absolutely. And Luciana was actually there at the conference as well, obviously talking about her own experiences. Mm. And as you said, this isn't a party specific issue. This is something that affects women from across the political spectrum. Anti-Semitism is awful. Misogyny is awful. And now the two have become linked. So now we really do have to try and address this issue. Dreadful, dreadful situation to be in. And it's quite amazing as well, if you think about it, that based on what you were saying about what she has gone through with all of the Brexit negotiations in recent time, that she has actually managed to find time to address this issue. Let's be honest, there are many other pressing issues that we need our Prime Minister to deal with in this country. And of all of them, she has chosen this, which is in itself quite extraordinary. It really is, considering that what we're talking about here are two groups that are often discriminated against. And she has taken the time to take their concerns very seriously. Now, Fran, that leads actually rather cleverly into the second headline, which is quite disturbing, isn't it? Apparently, a third of Europeans know nothing about the Holocaust. Can you tell us about a little bit about how the poll was conducted? Sure. It was a CNN Comrades study which showed 5% of Europeans had, quote, never heard quote, unquote, of the Holocaust. It was a poll of more than 7,000 Europeans with more than 1,000 respondents in Austria, France, Germany, the UK, Hungary, Poland, and Sweden. And just to sort of paint an even bleaker picture, four in 10 Austrians said they knew very little about the Holocaust. I mean, come on, Austria, the birthplace of Hitler, where it all began. This is not just shocking, it's terrifying. We are in a situation now where survivors of the Holocaust, our first-hand witnesses of the Holocaust, are dying out. It's a dying generation. We only have their testimonies, really, to go by. Mm. In another 20 years or so, what will we be telling our children? What will we be telling the younger population? And to say that a third of Europeans don't even know about the Holocaust, haven't even a clue what that means. Do we assume they're adults? 
it was one in five aged between 18 and 34. So we are talking about... I we're thought, talking about people who should have been yeah. through the education system. I was going to say, I thought... Dare we say the, millennials? I thought the <laughs> curriculum in Europe, they taught the Holocaust. They well, they the certainly do in the UK. Do they? Can we assume that all those other countries that you mentioned actually have it on their school curriculum? I say that because it, it may be a lost cause with the 18 to 34-year-olds, but we do need to concentrate on the younger ones who are coming through school, and that's the only way they will learn is through their curricula. Absolutely. But if you think about 18 to 34-year-olds are the next generation of mm. parents as well. And if they're coming through the system, not knowing much about the Holocaust, we can't really hope Assume much for their, their children. children. No. So, Unless the schools step in. See, the problem is, though, that I have a bit of an issue with this because I think that it's very easy for us as a group of Jews to sit here and say this is terrible, that no one is learning about the Holocaust in Europe, or if they are, they're not really taking much notice of it and therefore go away claiming they don't know anything about it. But the truth is that we have a vested interest in the Holocaust because it happened to our ancestors. But then again, having said that, I was never partisan to the Russian Revolution, and I've probably forgotten all of the history about it because I have no interest in it, if I'm honest. Okay, I know I should do but I don't. And therefore, I wonder whether or not that's part of the problem, is that it's a case of actually getting people to have an interest in the Holocaust, when the truth is, there just isn't from their point of view. And almost, yeah, why should they? But they're be? almost saying they haven't been taught anything about it. Yes, which, that, which is a little That was odd. my point. That was my point. Even Rather, just as, even if you taught about it, and then you forget about even it. Even if it's just history, mm. as part of a history mm. curriculum. I think to say that you don't even know what the, the word Holocaust means, yes, um, it's just shocking. It really is. Yeah. Let's get on to the next. I'm going to take two stories together here because they're both entertainment related. One is your interview with Rachel Weiss, who's in a film now called Disobedience. And I must claim a little bit of ownership for that because I'm also in a, a scene from that one as well. Yes, well, perhaps I, I should have interviewed you as now, well. shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Please. Absolutely. Yes, I spoke to um, Rachel Weiss about her latest film, Disobedience, as you said. It is based on the critically acclaimed novel by Naomi Alderman of the same name. And essentially it revolves around a rabbi's daughter named Renit, who Weiss plays, who is a kind of a proverbial black sheep of the community. She had a bit of a lesbian liaison, shall we say, feelings towards a friend of hers mm. during her teen years. And as a result of that was kind of excommunicated from her strictly orthodox community. She returns many years later after her father dies to find that the woman with whom she'd shared an illicit attraction is now married to her best friend and her cousin, Dovid, and leading a, a religious life. And bringing the two back together again stirs up all kinds of emotions. Didn't um, it just, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, the film, you know, apart from the scene that everybody is talking about, the six minutes of that, in case anyone's interested, apart from that, it does deal with a very thought-provoking, poignant issue, which is that there are people living in Orthodox communities who have feelings towards people of the same sex, mm -hmm. and they're really, really conflicted between choosing between God and and how they feel towards this person. So I think that it's, it, it's good that, that the film raises these issues. 
I think it's the first time that we've probably ever seen an orthodox oh. lesbian love film. Um, and it is done in a very, very mm. sensitive way. Apart from the fact you'll get nostalgic feelings of seeing Golders Green and Edgware and Hendon and camera wizardry is quite amazing they go into a house and go screen and come out in edgeware yeah, it's brilliant isn't it's it? really really good editing yeah. aside from that it does raise some issues that we probably should all be thinking about yep there are people and and let's carry on then to another rachel now to rachel brosnahan who is the marvelous mrs Maisel. yes if you're a fan of the the first series which did amazingly for Amazon Prime Video swept the boards at the Emmys. I think it got eight Emmys, only one behind Game of Thrones. The second series is coming. It's coming out on December the 5th. I got to speak to Rachel Brosnahan, who sort of fills me in on what's going on. I think this time they're off to the Catskills, the Borscht Belt, as it was known. We've also been promised a trip to Paris. And we find out a little bit more about a handsome Jewish doctor that I think Mrs. Maisel's going to be coming into contact with. So all eyes on that. It's an amazing, feel-good, nostalgic romp through the 1950s in uh, Jewish America. And it's definitely worth seeing if you are an Amazon Prime customer. And if the paper wasn't free, it'd be worth paying for just to read all your interviews this week. Well, I think so. I think my interviews are always worth paying for. But as I said, I probably should have interviewed you now. Knowing that you another are time, a star. Another time. <laughs> well, that's where we have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Fran Wolfish, Features Editor of The Jewish News. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the paper every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, for many, this time of year is where members of the community think about how they are going to spend their time at Limud, the annual conference for Jewish learning and culture. This year's event will be held between the 23rd and 27th of December in Birmingham, and it looks set to be bigger and better than ever. To cope with the growth of the festival, the organisation has just appointed a new chair in the form of Shoshana Bloom and a new deputy director, John Friedman. And I'm delighted to say we can speak to John now. John, welcome to The Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. First of all, can you tell us about your involvement with Limud? How did you first stumble across it? I stumbled across Limud as a, a natural stepping stone as I was stumbling away from my youth movement background. I was a, a leader in RSY Netzer and a movement worker while I was at university, suddenly becoming aware that you're reaching the top age end of a youth movement. Limud was there as a, just an opportunity to carry on. It's a, a sort of natural progression. Yeah. And of course... With working within the community, it must have really prepared you for life in an organization such as Lamud, which is quite unique, isn't it, really? I don't know of anything else like it. So my, my work in the Jewish community, as well as with RSY, has been working in synagogues. And I know certainly that I, I finished work in November at Finchley Reform Synagogue. And for many of our members there, Engagement with Lamud is as core a part of their Jewish life as is synagogue life. And a synagogue like Finchley brings as much of Lamud into its heart as it can, uh, whether that's musicians or service leaders or study opportunities. It's almost uh, as it was when I was leaving a youth movement, I won't say how many years ago, it now feels like a just a, it's, it's as stepping we'll around a, a familiar of, territory. Just a yeah. of years. <laughs> <laughs> now with the actual progression of Lamud as an organisation, mm-hmm. 
how has it developed to require a new chair in the form of Shoshana and new deputy director in the form of your good self? Mm -hmm. What has changed that suddenly these new appointments have been made? What the the volunteers who set up Limud all those years ago hit upon was a really special model that didn't really happen in this way previously. A place where people can learn from all backgrounds and come together as equals and respect and value one another's diversity. And for all that to be entirely driven by the passion of volunteers. It's created a, a strong, vibrant, growing community. And over the years, people have come along to the, the, the Limud conferences that used to be called Festival, as it will be in its second year this year, and taken that model back to their towns across the country and taken it back to their country. So there's now dozens of Limuds all over the world, and each one looking for the support and the training and the knowledge about how to run events in the way that we do here. So our, our volunteers and our staff are spending their time supporting many more places than they are now. And I'm really looking forward to just bringing the team of volunteers and paid staff so that we can really achieve our mission as one. Now, I fear that it would be remiss of me to not actually ask what Limud does, because I think it's wrong to assume that everyone listening knows what Limud is and how it functions. So how would you summarise the organisation and the event that is Limud? So if I talk about uh, Limud Festival in December, over 2,000 Jewish people from this country and from abroad will come together into a venue that will be buzzing and thrumming with the noise of, of learning and culture. Across the five days of the festival, there are many different strands. So whether the thing that floats your boat is text study, whether it's learning about music through prayer or art or a thousand other sessions that I couldn't even begin to describe. There's, there's something for everyone. There's a choice at every moment. And there are values that underpin everything that we do. So there is everybody who comes along understands that they're going to be respectful of other people's views, that they're going to have an opportunity to experience ideas cultures that they wouldn't have experienced in the comfort of their small parts of the Jewish world that they occupy outside of Limud. So hundreds of sessions, thousands of people, hundreds of presenters, that's the festival. And that's kind of the model that we, we look to emulate across the country and around the world. And each one is run by teams of volunteers in partnership with a very small staff, but volunteerism is at the heart of what we do. I'll talk about my own my own experience. My way of engaging with the Jewish community is really about doing. And more than doing, it's about learning how to lead. When participants become leaders, they can create more, it creates its own energy. And that's that's what we're creating at Limud. Now, to anyone who has not been to Limud before, I think a fair way to summarize it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a way of expanding one's Jewish mind or expanding the knowledge and culture that one has access to in Judaism. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. So the, the mission statement that we have is taking you one step along your Jewish journey. And we make no presumption about where you start that Jewish journey and where you're going to finish and which direction those steps will be. But you will exactly expand your mind, expand your horizons learn new opportunities 
And why do you think Limud is, I know this sounds really a horrible question, but it's not meant to be. Why do you think Limud is so popular? I think that it's unusual to have so many of us together in one place. And I think that we thrive off the energy, the sheer choice, the fact that there is a choice of so many sessions at once on so many different topics. The sheer scale of it brings the very, the greatest minds, the, the top performers. Donna International this year is one of our headline acts and we're really looking forward to welcoming her alongside the chief rabbi. I mean, I don't know if they will appear on stage together. I was going to say, will the they be rabbi. performing together? Will they? Because that would be something I have to come I'm, and see if that's the case. Oh, I, I may have just slightly oversold that session, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that uh, it's it's fairly obvious that they won't necessarily be at the same session, but hopefully <laughs> at the same conference. But that's just an example of how varied and how vast the selection is mm, for yeah. Limud. There really is, and I'm, I'm not even being paid to do your marketing here, but there really Doing is nothing like it. And this is what I think draws so many people to it. There is one question that needs to be answered, though. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind that the largest Jewish communities in this country anyway are in London and Manchester, why Birmingham? Well, it's a perfect halfway point, but also... It's, it's a venue that works well for us. We've been there for a few years now and it works for us. I, I think it's, a, it's, not, it's not a huge journey. There are still spaces. So if you're listening and thinking, I'm not sure I've never tried it before, but I could do it for a day. You can certainly do it for a day from London or Manchester or Gateshead. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the day-to-day running of the organization, because I think that someone would be forgiven for thinking, well, if Lamud's only five days as a festival, why is there... An organization behind it you know what does the organization do the rest of the year you've mentioned some of the other limuds which obviously don't happen at the same time so tell us a bit about the the working year for mm-hmm. limud as an organization not day by day we don't have that long sure so there are day limuds around the country last month we were in cambridge the new year will be in harrow and all over the place as well we like i say th- this happens around the world so we're in constant contact with groups in in hungary and in Poland and all over the states. And if you um, if you have a look at our Facebook feed, on any given Friday, there will be a, a Shabbat Shalom message to whichever Limud in the world is having their gathering that weekend. I think Caracas was last Shabbat. So there's a, there's a constant turnover of work. And a lot of these communities are not as blessed as we are with the infrastructure. So there's a lot of time spent on training and supporting. There's a really hardworking team who help train and send out resources and find funding for these groups. So it really is a year-long project. And in fact, just the festival itself, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be meeting with the chairs of the 2019 festival so that we're already getting work underway for that. Excellent. Well, may you have every success you possibly want with it, but just give us the details of where people can go and what they can do if they do want more information about the 2018 festival. It's very simple. www.limud.org. John Friedman, Deputy Director of Limud. First and foremost, muzzle off on your new position. And thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. Thank you. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish Views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, many films have been centred around stories of Holocaust survival, each one with their own unique tale. But this next one may very well be one of the most unusual of them all. Back to Berlin is the first biker flick meets Holocaust feature documentary. It follows the journey of 11 motorbikers on a mission to take the Maccabea torch from Israel to the site of the infamous 1936 Berlin Olympics. They retrace the heroic journeys of the original 1930s Maccabea riders and discover how they or their families survived the Holocaust. To find out more about this fascinating film, we can now speak to its director, Catherine Lurie. Catherine, let's start with your background. Where do you come from in terms of the film world, and what was your motivation for making the documentary? Well, I trained as a journalist in South Africa. I've been very involved with sport all my life. I'm on the board of trustees for Maccabi World Union. And about five years ago, I was asked to be a broadcaster to cover the games in Israel, the main games. And it was there that I found the story of the original bikers. I created and produced and broadcasted this short film, which was interviewing the chairman of the Maccabee at that time. And it was there where I heard how the Maccabi motorbikers of 1930, who went to Frankfurt on this huge tour all the way to Belgium for the first trip, how they went around searching for athletes. And if his uncle and his aunt hadn't gone to the games in 1932, their family would never have been saved. And as he quoted, Maccabi saved my family from the nails of the Nazis. So it was with this story and studying these heroic journeys that when I heard that Germany was going to host the games in 2015, I found it ironic and historic that we, the Jews, would now be welcomed to a site where they certainly weren't welcome in 1936. So it was an act of defiance to take the torch and fly the flag through a Europe where Jews have been decimated to make a statement and a stand against all that has happened to the Jewish people. Now, this is not the first commemorative film about the bikers, but the first to retrace that particular event. Correct. But the first, very first games for the, the Maccabi Games in the British Mandate of Palestine was in 1932. So there were two groups of bikers that went out in 1930 and 1931 to get athletes for the very first games in now Israel. In 1935, another group went out to try and find athletes for a games that were scheduled for 1938, but it would never happen. And these bikers, one of whose grandchildren is the biker girl in our film, went actually all the way to America and Canada to find athletes to come to the game. So the reason why I made the film is because in 2015, we were welcomed by the German president to go to the very same Nazi stadium site where Jews had not been allowed to come or had not been wanted to come in 1936. Because if you recall, Hitler wanted to ban all Jews from the games. Many countries were going to boycott him. He then relented and he allowed one half German Jew who'd already emigrated to Canada to America to compete. 
And indeed, the athlete runners from America, the two Jewish ones that were eventually found, were banned, I believe, on the day. And one of them was replaced by Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. The two of them, Stoller and Glickman, were told on the morning of the relay race that they wouldn't be running. So that's encapsulated in the film. Yes. And indeed, Jesse Owens won the gold, much to Hitler's displeasure, I imagine. What were the difficulties that this particular motorbike riding team met on their way across Europe? Were there any pitfalls or anything that, you know, really stopped them in their tracks? As you can imagine, I had nine Israelis and two diaspora Jews. They know nothing about anti-Semitism because they live in Israel. So they were... Everyone on that team were strong and motivated, and this journey impacted everyone. It was only when I went on the recce trip, which is the trip you take before you make a film, that when we spoke to the Jewish communities on the way, these remnants of Jewish communities, where very few live still, they were very concerned about the Israeli flag being shown. So that was mainly in the communities of Greece, Hungary and Poland. So that is where on our journey we had police protection because the communities had organized that. But we didn't have pitfalls. I mean, I had an incredible team. So we had, it was very precise where we were going, how many miles we'd have to go, where we bought our petrol, where the hotels would be so that the gate, the bikes would be safeguarded. But I think each and every single person on that journey had a reason to be there. And hearing each story, each biker revealing their story had a huge impact on all of us. And I think my my film is unique, as I've been told by a big broadcaster in America, is unique because it's filled with an element of hope. And the hope is that we go there, go back as new Jews to face what happened to old Jews who were just shunted into railway cars. So that tagline, better by bike than by train, really embolizes what my film is. The age group of the team, first of all, why are there 11 of them? And what ages were they? What was the range? There's 11 because the three teams that went out in 1930, 31 and 35 all had 11 bikers. So we wanted to replicate that. And the range was between 39 and 78. Good heavens. The 78-year-old must have been a child then, presumably, during the Holocaust. He was aged six to eight during the Holocaust. Right. So he's our sort of one of our star performers. Okay. And he only reveals his story for the very first time during this journey. How was the film funded? Well, I funded a lot of the film with family money. And now I can't put any more family money into it. I had two great shareholders. And then we've had donations because people believe that what we're doing is something important and sends a message. I think it sends a message to Jews and I think it sends a message to non-Jews. And what's been incredible in the past week while we released the film in the United Kingdom is that my non-Jewish audiences have loved the film because they've learned so much. And we're really trying to call on the Jewish community to come and see the film and support this message. So I would really love your help because we've still got some screenings to go in Bristol, in Kilburn and 
coming up in Dartington, Derby and Birmingham if they went on our website to find these so that they could actually fill the seats and show support and understand what this film's about. Because I think showing my film, we've now in 19 festivals worldwide, showing my film in America to Jewish communities, it was after Pittsburgh that the reaction of the audience became quite different. And I think the film gives a feeling of strength and hope, particularly to Jews. And what have you taken away from it, Catherine, by putting the film together? Well, I think I've had the best three and a half years I could ever have had. I've lived it, dreamt it, slept it. It's something I passionately believe in. And I believe that Jews cannot be strong without the land of Israel. Thank you so much for being with us. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, we know that when it comes to Jewish schools, we have rather a lot to be proud of. The standard of our education institutions is arguably second to none. This has been proven further by Yavna College in Boreham Wood, which has just been named the best-performing comprehensive school in the country. The accolade comes from the annual Parent Power List and was published in the Sunday Times. Let's discuss this further with a man who knows a thing or two about Yavna College, Spencer Lewis, who is the head teacher of Yavna and joins us now. Now, before we start, what is the Parent Power List? Parent Power List is devised annually to analyse school performance, mostly based on the pupils who've done particularly well at the top level. So those who've got A's and A stars at the A level and seven, eights and nines, as we call them now, at GCSE. And it's an organisation that basically puts together that table to advise parents on which are the best schools for their children. And how many schools get nominated for this? Well, it's every school in the country. It's absolutely every comprehensive school in the country. It's every comprehensive school and every independent school. Oh, although, the, although are two, but there are two separate lists. They don't compare one with the other. There's a comprehensive, and there was, there's a state school list, I should say, yes. and there's an independent school list. And of course, in the in the state schools, there are some which are selective, there are some which are partially selective, and there are some like us that are comprehensive entirely. Right. And what does a school really have to do to get nominated? Well, it isn't, to be honest, it isn't really a nomination. All schools take examinations. And so they take all of the examination results and they compare them school to school. So it isn't a nomination. Every single school in the country, they have access to the, to the data of every school in the country. And our school's data was the best of all the non-selective comprehensive schools. So how, let me talk about the levels then that Yavna achieved. What was your actual figures on that? Our actual figures, I don't actually have them to hand, but what they do is they combine the two sets of data, so the A-level and the GCSE data, at, uh, according to those people who got the very highest grade, so A's and A-stars A-level, and what we call 7s, 8s, and 9s at GCSE. And they combine those two data together and that's how they come up with the overall positioning of that school so it's quite a complicated analysis because you know like all data it's it's not it's not straightforward but it is based on what we call student attainment 
and how well the, the pupils do. And, and obviously that's something we were extremely proud of. And out of all the Jewish schools that were in the parent power list, and you obviously came first, whereabouts did the other? Did you come in comparison to the others? I mean, well, I know you're number I'm, one. I, I'm delighted to say that that lots of the Jewish schools were pretty much near the top. We were number one, and actually JFS was number two. Because, wow. Which is an amazing tribute to our community. And there was actually one school between us and JFS, but that school is, uh, to my knowledge, partially, partially selective. If you went on their website, you would see they, they openly declare that. So actually, in, ter- in, in, in terms of the state completely comprehensive schools, we were number one and JFS was number two, which... As I say, as a community of schools, we've got to be incredibly proud of. That really says something for Jewish education, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we, we you know we have very, very high standards of academic success as well as all the Jewish studies and community work, etc. That 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 we do. So, you know, that that really is very special. As head teacher of Yavna, what does it mean to you personally? You know, what, I think it makes me very proud. Obviously. I have to say that there are there, there is one other thing that makes me even more proud because as I've been emphasizing, this list is is pupils who've done particularly well at the top grades. But one of the things that we measure most actually is the progress of the pupils. We the government now takes the pupils and judges their best eight subjects and gives the overall score in terms of progress. And our progress was what we call Progress 8, was at 1.27. We were the highest performing Progress 8 in the whole of Hertfordshire and one of the highest in the country. And actually, that's a figure that, that in a way, I'm even more proud of because, you know, people may be very clever and may get, get lots of A's and A stars, but there are also lots of people who have targets, let's say, of a B, but they got an A, or a target of a 6, but they got an 8. And actually, that means the value added that the school gave to that pupil the amount of progress that they've made in the time that they're with us is phenomenal. And actually, in a way, that, that makes me even more proud than the raw attainment. And what does Yavna do that's different to the other schools to just attain these achievements? Look, I think we, I think we all do lots. One of the things that I think we do very well is the personal guidance and support that we give to the pupils. We have 150 students in each year, which I think is an optimum number. We work very closely with each child. Each child gets mentoring and advice, personal advice for a very strong pastoral and academic team. Um, our teachers work incredibly hard, as well as in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in lunch times and after school interventions, working very closely with them. We work very closely with our parents, and, and it won't surprise you to hear that we have very ambitious parents and pupils who want to do very well, and they'll stop at nothing to do the very best they can for their for their children. And that aspiration, together with the aspiration of the teachers and the students themselves, is a, is a, is a heady mix. Now that you've been given this title, what does the title actually do for the school? Look, it gives us very good publicity. We're able to, you know, to, to say proudly that that we this year were the top-performing, non-selective state school. But, of course, you know, we the school is already very popular, is already incredibly oversubscribed. It's, I suppose it, it helps us to, to prove what we've been saying, that, you know, that, that we offer a very good education. 
more than that, I think it's just uh, I think it's great for the teachers because I think that you know teachers get uh, no, don't always get the best deal, and sometimes they 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 feel a little bit dispirited or they feel you know they're working so hard and people don't recognise it, and this is real recognition. So you know I'm really happy for the staff and the teachers and, and the non-teaching staff because they do such a fantastic job. Well, on a personal note, I'm quite happy. I've got a, a granddaughter, age six, who's actually at the small school. More from you yeah, on that, please. That's wonderful. Yes, yeah. we started our, our Yavna Primary School a couple of years ago and very oversubscribed and doing fantastically well. So we'll look forward to your granddaughter joining us in the secondary. Yeah, and hopefully you'll still be at the top of the list when that comes. Uh, hopefully. Yes, lovely. Spencer Lewis, head teacher of Yavna College, thank you very much for taking time out today to talk to us. No problem. My pleasure. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. This week brings the lovely festival of Hanukkah. I always enjoy watching the lights and thinking of the wonder that they represent. The question has been asked... Surely the miracle begins on day two only, because in the story in the Talmud, the one vial of pure oil the Maccabees found in the desolate ruins of the temple did contain sufficient fuel for the first day, so the miracle should start on day two. But I think the miracle begins not not even on day one, but almost before the first day starts. Because think of their decision. Should we light or should we not light? There must have been those who have said, wait, we've reconquered the temple. Let's get a proper supply of oil so that we can continuously keep this menorah alight. Wait until we've got enough for the future. And there will be others who said, we have enough for a single day. Let's make a start. And this to me is true of inspiration. It's true of the illumination, the oil, as it were, that we have in our hearts. One can say, oh, I haven't got enough, or it won't burn for long, or it's not worth trying. I don't know what the future will bring and do nothing. Or one can say, there's a small flame there. There's something that burns. There's the first line of a song. Let me start and then see what happens. And when a person of any age or indeed of any faith brings the inspiration that they have, however small it seems at first, it always lasts longer than you think. And other people take it up. Other people's flames come to join your flame. And that's the miracle, I think, of the Maccabees. It's about hope. It's about courage. It's about saying, we'll light the light that we have and we'll trust that the flame will grow. And it has. And that flame of of hope in times of darkness, that's what burns in our windows every Hanukkah till this day. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, John Friedman of Limwood, Spencer Lewis of Yavne College, and Catherine Lurie, the director of Back to Berlin. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, 
jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News. From me, Diana Toman. Me, Phil Dave. And me, Tony Honigberg. Do join us next time here on the Jewish Views. Goodbye for now.